I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles. There's three openings of Scripture that I'm going to start with this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and then 2 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and 2 Timothy chapter 2. We want to conclude a series that we've been teaching for a couple of weeks. I'm not sure exactly how long, but several weeks on the subject of sanctification. And I want to use these scriptures, we've used them before, but I want to use these scriptures again uh, as kind of a beginning point for the subject. Sanctify, to sanctify or sanctification means to separate. Now in the Old Testament, uh, sanctification was uh, identified as something that uh, was required of, of God. And uh, there were things and people in the, on the Old Covenant uh, that were sanctified and separated uh, in, in, um, in Bible terms, Bible terminology. Sanctification is to be separated from the world. It means this. It means to be separated from the world for two purposes. For the service of God and the worship of God. Service for God, I should say, and worship of God. Now, under the Old Covenant, both things and people could be sanctified. Under the New Covenant, there's never any mention of anything made concerning sanctification except for people. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost, But of him are you in Christ Jesus, talking to Christians, who of God, who of God, speaking of Jesus, by the, the will of God, is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, folks, I would submit to you, and we've said this before, most of the time people read three of those four and think that's a great news. They think that's a great statement to be made. Most people look at the wisdom there and they think, well, yeah, we need wisdom. That's a wonderful thing. They look at righteousness. Oh, righteousness is so good. Most Christians think that they're trying to live up to righteousness rather than being made righteousness. But nevertheless, they realize the importance of it. And redemption. We've been redeemed from the curse of the law so that the blessing of Abraham is ours. That's a wonderful thing. But very, very few Christians that I know of take a hold of and really um, grab the importance if you'll allow me to say it that way, of sanctification and the fact that we have been made, un, uh, been made by Jesus unto God sanctified. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's writing to the same group of people, and he makes a statement to them about their past and what's happened to them. Sanctification is kind of an a unusual subject in that, uh, well, it's not unusual in this, this sense. It's unusual... Uh, because most people don't really have a grasp on what, it, what it's talking about. They recognize that it's in the Bible, but uh, it's one of those things that, that most Christians ignore. Uh, it's controversial in the sense that uh, there's disagreement in the body of Christ about what sanctification is. Is sanctification a one-time thing? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 seems to indicate that it's a one-time thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 seems to indicate that it's a one-time thing, but then other scriptures say differently. And so there's disagreement in the church about what it is. And so uh, in my experience, it seems to me that most people just leave it alone because nobody knows what it is. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, maybe we start reading in verse, uh, verse 9. Paul's writing to the church and says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you can recognize very clearly that those are things that correspond to the, the list of uh, works of the flesh. Over in Galatians chapter 5, many of the same things are mentioned here that are mentioned there. So we could very simply say, nobody that's operating according to the works of the flesh is going to inherit the kingdom of God based on what Paul is saying here. He mentions specific things, but it's generally understood that the works of the flesh are what we need to be sanctified from, Right? Then he goes further and says, verse 11, And such were some of you. In other words, this was your past before you found Jesus. But now that you're saved, you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So this would indicate to us that sanctification is something that takes place when you make Jesus the Lord of your life. You are separated unto God, and there's no question that that's an absolute fact. But the real question is, is that where sanctification ends? Turn with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writes to Timothy as a minister. He would have the same need to walk worthy of the Lord as the rest of us. And notice what he said. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Maybe we should start reading in verse 20.
But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Now, he's using this as a type of, or an illustration for the church of God. He said in the church, there are some people that, that operate honorably, and there are some people that operate dishonorably. They're all in the same house. In other words, he's saying some Christians live right and other Christians don't. Right? Well, what's, it, what's going to make the difference here? What's going to make the difference between whether you're an honorable vessel or a dishonorable vessel? Verse 21. He says, if a man therefore purge himself from these, now you could read the, the beginning of the chapter and see that these are talking about things of the world, generally. He's talking about vain babblings and profane things and stuff like that. He's talking about the works of the flesh. So he said, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use and prepared for every good work. Now, I thought verse... First Corinthians 6 just said that, they, that we were sanctified when we got saved. Now Paul is telling Timothy that if you clean yourself or separate yourself or purge yourself, whatever word you want to use, if you separate yourself from the works of the flesh, then you will be sanctified. Now this is the reason why there's disagreement in the body of Christ, don't it? And why, why in, in my experience, there's been very little teaching on it. Which way is it? Well, it's both ways. You're sanctified. You're separated unto God by the new birth. You're washed in the blood of Jesus, separated once and for all from sin. But now what you do with that condition of separation is up to you. Whether or not you continue to live free from sin in the works of the flesh is entirely up to you. You were sanctified. You have been sanctified. You are sanctified. The question is, are you living a sanctified life? You're a sanctified individual. You're a sanctified spirit, a new creature in Christ Jesus. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation, a new species of being, one translation says. The question is, what are you doing with it? How are you living your life as this new species of being? Are you living separated unto God in the manner in which he purchased for you by the blood of Jesus? Or are you living like the world and just saying, well, thank God I'm going to go to heaven? Paul writes to Timothy and says there's going to be both groups of people, both types of people. He said there are going to be people that won't live sanctified lives, and those will be vessels unto God. They're still in the house of God. They're still in the family of God. They're still going to make heaven. But God considers that. If the Holy Ghost is giving Paul the utterance to say these things, then the Holy Ghost considers that to be dishonorable manner of living. But there are those who will live honorably. What's going to make the difference? How are we going to live honorably? By separating ourselves from the works of the flesh. Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I dare say that if I were to ask the question, how many of you want to live free from the works of the flesh, everybody's going to raise their hands, or the ones that don't, going to look around and see what everybody else does and stick theirs up to. So we could generally say that that's something that every Christian wants to do, right? The question is, how? Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. We talked last week, if you were with us, you may remember... We talked about Paul's example. Paul in the 7th and 8th chapter of Romans goes into detail about the struggle that he was having with his flesh. Now, isn't it strange that somebody that would be called and have a a conversion experience as, as spectacular as Paul did, getting saved by a blinding light on the road to Damascus. I mean, hearing a voice from heaven, some the power of God demonstrated in such a way that it knocked him off the animal he was riding. I didn't get saved that way, did you? I didn't experience the power of God in that same way. I didn't have any kind of spectacular experience. I got saved just praying with my mom kneeling down by my bed. Well, Paul had an an unusual, a spectacular experience of salvation. And you would think that somebody that would have something that unusual, something that spectacular, would be able to walk through his Christian life without ever having any problems. Especially when God had called for him to be a prophet and a teacher and then later to be an apostle. But Paul goes into detail in Romans chapter 7 about the struggle that he had after he was saved with his flesh. So it's a struggle that's common to everybody then. I mean, if Paul's going to experience this and if God used Paul to give us the revelation which the whole world will be judged by, if he had trouble with his flesh, then you're going to have trouble with yours too. If Paul said that he had to keep his body under, don't think that you're not going to have to keep yours under. Right? Well, he goes through the experience and he tells us about, or tells the Romans, writes to the Romans and the Holy Ghost saved us the letter, about the the struggle that Paul had with his flesh, but how he gained the victory. The purpose for telling us about the struggle is to show us how he gained the victory. 
And he gained the victory by realizing who Jesus was on the inside of him. He didn't gain the victory because something changed in his body. He didn't separate himself from the works of the flesh because all of a sudden, now something happened on the inside of him. Something happened in his spirit and God gave him something he didn't have before. And folks, I would submit to you that most Christians, the vast majority of Christians, are waiting for something to happen. And unless that something, and they don't know what it is, but unless that something happens, they'll never, in their thinking, overcome the works of the flesh. In other words, their idea is, I don't have what I need now to live a victorious life. I'm going to keep stumbling over the flesh. I'm stumble, repent, stumble, repent, stumble, repent, stumble, repent. And folks, everybody knows. Everybody that's been any distance whatsoever in their Christian life knows that's a miserable way to live. But what's going to change it? Most Christians are looking for, most people are looking for something to happen that hasn't happened before. That's not the way Paul gained victory. Nothing happened to Paul that hadn't happened before. He didn't have Jesus appear to him again and say, be blessed, I give you victory over your flesh. He didn't have another blinding light from heaven. He didn't have another voice that spoke out. There was nothing that happened from the outside that changed in Paul's life. Nothing happened with his body. There was nothing that happened that he finally got old enough to where his flesh wasn't a problem anymore. That's not the way that he gained victory. And neither did he gain victory because Jesus put something extra or more in his spirit than he had when he got saved. That's not the way that he gained victory. The way that he gained victory is he came to the realization. It was a work in his soul. He came to the realization of what Jesus had already put to, on the inside of him. Who he had already been made. That's why 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 is so important. You have been made by God through Jesus wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. If you don't come to the realization of what the wisdom of God in you will do, you'll never take advantage of it. If you don't come to the realization of what the righteousness of God that you've been made by the blood of Jesus really means on the inside of you, you'll never walk in righteousness. If you don't come to the realization of what sanctification means that the, uh, concerning the work of God that's already been done in you, you'll never live separate from the works of the flesh. If you don't come to the realization of what redemption that Jesus has already purchased for you by his blood means that's already within you, you'll never take advantage of it. The change occurred in Paul's understanding. He came to understand the victory that was already his. Romans chapter 6. Here's the setup for Paul telling about his experience. He tells us in chapter 5 where sin came from, how death entered into the world. It was through Adam's sin. He tells about the victory that we have in Jesus. And then he starts in chapter 6 and says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, he's already explained to them in a measure. He's explained to them, even though you may be operating in sin, the grace of God has made you free from that sin. And folks, in my opinion, this is one of the greatest paradoxes in the Christian life. And if you don't ever come to the place where you understand this paradox, how can you be free from sin and sin still be present in your body? If you can't come to understand the reality of how that works, you'll never walk in righteousness. You'll never walk in the freedom. You'll never walk in the redemption that Jesus has purchased for you. That is the paradox. That is the dilemma. How can we be free from sin, like the Bible says, if sin's still operating in our flesh? And that causes the devil to have free reign in our lives to say, well, it works that way for other people maybe, but not you. Something's wrong with you. If only you'd get things straightened up, then it would be different for you. And so what do we do? We try to fix things from the outside, and it never works. Never works. There's no power from the outside that can ever fix things that Jesus purchased. So he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead? Literally, this word are dead, this translated are dead is died. Literally, we that died unto sin. How shall we that died unto sin live any longer therein? Know ye not. Please notice how many times Paul says, and, and not well, he'll say it more times than what we read, but just in the few times, few scriptures that we read, notice how many times Paul talks about knowing something. Because it was what he came to know that changed him and brought him into victory. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Now, baptism he's talking about is not water baptism. 
He's talking about making Jesus the Lord of your life. Being baptized into Christ means being saved. Baptism in water is just an outward sign of something you've already done inside. So he's not talking about water baptism. Don't read this and think, well, I've never been baptized, so I'm, I'm out of luck. He's not talking about that. He's talking about baptism into Christ, meaning salvation. Know ye not that as so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. Again, this is not water baptism. Even though water baptism is a type of burial of Jesus, being going into the earth and being raised again. It's an illustration of what happens when we're born again. He's not talking about water baptism. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, through salvation, through making Jesus the Lord of our lives. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, folks, please notice that phrase, walk in newness of life. What does he mean? He means walk sanctified. He means walk in sanctification. Walking in newness of life is sanctification. It's separating yourself from the things of the world under the things of God. And remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 10. He said, I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Jesus did not come to bring us a code of conduct. He did not come to bring us a set of rules. He did not come to try to change our behavior. He came to bring us one thing and one thing only, and that was life. Now Paul is saying there are things that we need to know so that we walk in that life. That's the key to victory. It's the key to being sanctified under the things of God. Not just sanctified by salvation, but sanctified by the way you live. It's the key to walking, in a, walking a sanctified or living a sanctified life. Walking in newness of life. How are we going to do that? We all want to do that. How are we going to? Verse 5. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. The word planted is the word united. If we have been united together with him in the likeness of his death, we shall be also united together with him in his resurrection. That's what he's saying. He's saying you need to come to know something. And that is you died. You died. When Jesus died, you died. One theologian said many years ago, it seems that there is a parallel track to what happened with Jesus and what happened with the believer. And folks, he couldn't be more wrong. There is no parallel track. It's the same track. It's a single rail. It's not two rails like a railroad track. It's the same track. The same rail. What happened to Jesus, because you are in him, happened to you. Well, what happened to Jesus? He died, and you died with him. And he was raised from the dead, and you were raised with him. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, And you which were dead in trespasses and sins, has he quickened together with him. Verse 6, it goes on to say, And has raised us up together, to be seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, folks, the problem that you and I experienced that caused us to have a need for a Savior to begin with was that we were dead. Not that we were sinners. Being sinners was a byproduct of being dead, spiritually dead. We were separated from God, and that was the issue. That was the original consequence of Adam's sin. In the day you eat thereof, the fruit of the tree that it was commanded not to eat thereof, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. He's not talking about physical death because Adam didn't die not for 930 years after, physically. He's talking spiritual death. Death entered the world by one man's sin, Adam. The problem is mankind is dead. The problem with the world is not that men are sinners. The problem is men are dead. And there's only one cure for spiritual death, and that's eternal life, and that can only come through Jesus. So just as Jesus died, was made to be death on the cross... You remember when he was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was the point where he became united with death. He didn't sin himself like Adam did, but he became united with death. The nature of mankind's condition was made unto Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That sin does not mean individual sins, although that is included. It means the original sin which brought spiritual death. Jesus 
died spiritually on the cross. And that's why the whole world went dark for three hours. God turned his face away from Jesus. And that's why he cried out, why have you forsaken me? God, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? God can't look upon sin. That's the point where Jesus was made to be sin, literally spiritual death. So when Jesus died, all those that would be in him died too. But then three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead. For what purpose? So that you would be raised with him. So now, because of that life that literally swallowed up death, we are commanded to walk in the newness of that life. Now, folks, here's something that separates Christianity from any other religion or any other philosophy on the face of the earth. There is no other religion that ever claims to change the nature of the believers or their adherents. Buddhism doesn't claim to change the nature of the individual. Hinduism doesn't. Judaism doesn't. Islam certainly doesn't. There is no other religion on the face of the earth that claims to change the nature of the adherent. But Christianity says, come to Jesus and he'll make you a new creature, a new creation, a new species of being. He'll make you a new spirit. Old things pass away instantly. And all things become new. If you know anything about church history, Charles Finney was very, very highly criticized during his day. He, was, uh, he preached at the end of the 1800s. And uh, it was very much criticized during his day. He had some of the greatest uh, revivals as far as size is concerned of anything known to man up to that point in time. And instead of having people come to the altar and tarry and wait and pray and cry and beg God and all this kind of stuff, he preached an instant salvation. He was a lawyer before he got into the ministry and actually started studying the Bible, trying to to, to refute it, to disprove it and found the truth of the word. And God saved himself and the Lord opened him, opened the doors of ministry to him. So he'd go into places and and the the reports, the historical reports. And I'm not just talking about Christian periodicals or things like that. But uh, but the newspapers, city newspapers would marvel at his crusades because he'd go into towns and get everybody saved. I mean, literally, whole towns would turn out. Bars and, and, and taverns and things like that would shut down because there'd be nobody left to go to. So it, his, his revivals, after he'd go to a region or an area, and he, he didn't jump from one place in the country to the other. He would go to, to work primarily in the northeast part of the country. And so he'd go from town to town to town, and it would be like he had wiped sin. His revivals would wipe sin off of that, that region of the country. Well, you can well imagine that that stirred up some trouble. Not only were people losing business, and remember, that's what caused the riot in Acts chapter in uh, uh, Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. People started crying out, these guys are teaching other people not to buy our little stone, our little silver idols. And it created a real problem. So it created problems for him everywhere that he went. But the greatest criticism he got was from the church. Because the church, people that weren't involved in his crusades and weren't behind what he was doing or anything like that, they would sit back, as Christians have always done, I guess. And they'd say, well, his converts won't last. Because he's preaching an instant salvation. He's making it too easy. He's not getting people to come to the altar and repent for hours and, and sometimes days at a time. He's just telling people to come to Jesus and make him their Lord and Savior. But church history, looking back now, church history shows that more of his converts stayed in fellowship with God than than anything known to man up to that point in time. And the reason for it is he would preach a change of nature. He would preach an instant change of nature. He would say, come give your heart to Jesus and he'll make you a new person. You won't want to do the same things you used to do. He'll make you new from within. And people took him at his word and did it. And he got people saved. He was one of the first people ever to pray according to Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. To get people not to confess their sins, but to confess Jesus as the Lord. I've never understood how somebody that's unsaved and been unsaved for a large part of their life is supposed to remember everything they did wrong anyway. How does that work? And what if you forget one? Does it not work? Does it not count? No, that's not what the Bible says. It says confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Well, that's what he would do. And as a result, people were getting saved by the thousands, by the thousands. And those converts stuck. 
I hope you know what I mean by that. They stayed in fellowship with God. In other words, he taught them not only were they new creatures, he taught them to walk in the newness of that life. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying that it's possible. And he's going to tell us how. Let's read that again in verse uh, verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Why? Because you were raised with him. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be united together in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, by the way, that word if means since. There are four different words in the Greek that are used for if. The first tense is this one, and it means for since we were united together with him in his death, we are also united together with him in his resurrection. He's talking to people that this has already happened for. It would certainly be true for anybody that it hasn't yet happened for, that it will happen for them if they make Jesus the Lord of their lives. But in this case, he's saying you've already done that. You died with Jesus. Knowing this, verse 6. Everybody say knowing. Here's the reason most Christians live in defeat. They don't know. Here's the reason Paul struggled with his flesh. He didn't know. Here's what he came to know that gained him victory. Knowing this. That our old man, who's the old man, not only is it the old spirit, but the old way of life. Because the way you used to live before you got saved was because you weren't saved. It's not because there was some special quirk about you that made you a, a, a super sinner. It's because you were spiritually dead. But that old man who was dead died. And the new man replaced him who's alive unto God. So he says, knowing this, here's how we're planted all, or united together in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is, literally was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. Verse 7. For he that is dead literally hath died. He that hath died is freed from sin. Here's the reason that, that people don't live up to that. They confuse the experience of their flesh with the relationship to sin. Let me explain what I mean. Friday, I went to work out for the first time in almost a year. I sh- there's a series of things that happened about a year ago, almost a year ago, that kept me out of the gym. And I've, I've worked out nearly all my life. And so this last year has been really kind of difficult for me. You get down on yourself. You get out of shape. You get overweight. And you do all th- kinds of things like that that we do that we know we shouldn't do. Well, I kept telling myself, I'm going to get better. I'm going to do better. I'm going to go back. One thing after another happened. It's been... Months and months and months, and now this has gone by. But finally, Friday, I decided, now I'm going to go. Well, here it is two days later, and even my eyelashes hurt. (laughs) I'd love to lift my hands and worship God, but they just won't go up. You know what I mean? I am one giant muscle ache. Huge muscle ache. Well, that's not me. I am not a muscle ache. I'm experiencing muscle pain in my body from head to toe. But that's not who I am. There's a difference between the experience of aching muscles and being a muscle ache. That's not who I am. Now, give me a few days. Give me another couple of times to work out. And I'll bring my body, I, the man on the inside, who right now, based on the feeling of my body, never want to see a gym again. (laughs) But there's something greater than the pain that I'm feeling in my body that's going to make me go back. A decision from the inside. And give me a little bit of time, and the man on the inside will make or discipline the man on the outside to do what it needs to do so that I won't hurt anymore. What happens is so many times people have that same type of experience with sin. They're experiencing sin in their body and they think that's them. And it's not. It never is for the Christian. Ever. It's never who the Christian is. You know, when when the church first started, I got really involved with uh, prison ministry in uh, Orange County. 
and uh, would go into the prisons and, and hold services and do things like that and even became uh, a part of the board for a couple of years for the, the group that um, is uh, uh, approved by the uh, county agency, the county jail facilities to, uh, to go in. And, uh, and, and I just, when I went in, the first time, the first several times, I just thought, okay, here is a place that's filled with sinners, meaning unsaved. Everybody here is unsaved, and the reason that they're in jail is because they've acted out according to their unsaved nature, and, and that's what it is. And I was shocked when hundreds of these guys would come to the services, and the majority of them would say they were saved and had been saved for a long time. And I'm thinking, well, what are you doing here? See, being in jail is foreign to me. I may be the first person in Alabama that's never been in jail, but, <laughs> but being in jail is a foreign experience to me. That's not the way I was raised. And so when I see the people in jail, when I saw these guys in the, in the jail facilities, I was just sure they were unsaved. All we have to do is get them saved and things will change. And I would hear these guys say that this was their second or third or fourth. One time, uh, one guy, the most I remember any guy saying was he had been uh, jailed for the fifth time. And he was spirit-filled. And I'm thinking, how does this work? What is going on? Well, the answer is very simple. The answer is they didn't walk in the newness of the life that they received in Jesus. Now, you put two guys side by side in the jail, and, and I couldn't tell. One would be saved, one would be unsaved. I'm looking at their records, and the guy that was saved may have even done something worse than the guy that was unsaved. And so there's no way that I could look at their lives or their experience and say, here's what this guy is. Why? Shouldn't there be a difference in those of us that are saved? There is and will be if we walk in the news of life. But just as Paul told Timothy that there are some vessels to dishonor, if some people don't choose to walk in that newness of life, they'll live just like the unsaved. They'll make it to heaven. They've got a place reserved in, them, in heaven for them just like you do and I do. Their name is written in the Lamb's book of life and hasn't been blotted out, thank the Lord. But we're talking about how you live here on, the lot, on this earth. And so many times people experience sin in their flesh, just like Paul did in Romans chapter 7, and they identify with that sin. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 6 that you can't do. You are to never identify with sin. You can never again be identified with sin because you died with Jesus. Somebody was telling me a testimony of uh, somebody in church. He's here today. That when he got saved, this was many years ago, when he got saved, he was a smoker, a real heavy smoker. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he just said, I guess his heart convicted him about it, something got, the Lord dealt with him some way or another about it. But he just said, I'll never smoke another cigarette again for the do- longest day I live. And he quit. A two-pack-a-day habit. Just like that. How can you do that? you got people that have been trying to quit smoking for years and years and years, and their body is enslaved to it. Well, his was... How did he quit? Because he became a new creature in Christ Jesus. He chose to walk in it. We had a girl here just uh, last year, middle of last year, I guess it was. She came in, her mom brought her in. Bless this girl's heart. She was such a mess, beautiful young lady, such a mess. She was hooked on drugs, hooked on heroin, had been for a long time. Her life was just being destroyed. She came up with her mom and, and I talked to her a little bit and she said, oh, I'm so tired of this, Pastor Mike. She said, I know that I got saved once before, but I don't know where I am with God now. So I just led her in a, a prayer to recommit herself to the Lord, repent, and come back to the Lord. She prayed just real sweetly. And I said, all right, now, now you're back in right fellowship with God. You're just as righteous as before you ever did anything wrong as far as God is concerned. So I said, here's what's going to happen. I said, because of that new life in God, that you, out of God's mercy, just because of God's mercy to show you who you are in him and how much he loves you, you will not have another problem with heroin. You won't have any withdrawals. This will be it. Now, I don't know if I said that just by the Holy Ghost or if I said that just because I believed that the life of God would change her. But she came back about two weeks later and she was shocked. The light on her face that you hadn't seen before. She came back and she said, Pastor Mike, she said, I'm not having any trouble. I'm not having any withdrawals. She said, I don't understand it. And I said, that's the life of God on the inside. Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life. He didn't say, I have come so that you might struggle in life. 
and then finally make it to heaven. He said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. She came back after those two weeks. She said, I can't believe it. Well, it's sure not her faith is doing it then, is it? She said, I can't believe it. I'm not having any trouble. She said, I haven't had any desire to, to get back on drugs or, or do anything. She said, it's, it's almost too easy. Well, who said that it was ever supposed to be hard? Receiving the life of God is not a hard thing. Now, I'd like to tell you that she's still free today. But she went back to hanging around with people that were doing drugs. Young people, that's why it's so important for you to understand. You've got to pick people that want the same things in God you do. It's not good enough just to say, I'm hanging around with Christians, because a lot of Christians don't want to walk in the newness of life. That's why the old saying is so true, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Well, she got hooked up with the wrong people. I'm glad to say she's back out again now. But, oh, she went through a struggle afterwards. She hit bottom, and then you talk about withdrawal. She had some kind of trouble the second time around. But she beat it. She kicked it. And now she's free again. Why? Because the life of God is greater than anything that's in the earth. It's greater than anything that's in the earth. The Bible really means it where it says greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. I mean, that's not just a a filler verse. It means it. It's true. It's right. Now, here's what people do. People confuse the experience of sin in their body with a relationship with sin. And you have no relationship with sin. Never will. Never will again. Once you make Jesus the Lord of your life, you will never have another relationship with sin. You may experience sin in your flesh. Paul did. He did in Romans chapter 7. And he said, here's what I came to realize. That's not the real me. Well, who's the real me? The real me is the one that can control and dominate the man on the outside. And that's why he came to the place where he said, I won't do anything if it hurts my brother. Why didn't he say, I won't do anything unless it hurts my flesh? That's how most Christians live. They live right up to the point where their flesh starts hurting and then they give up. That's not what Paul said. He said, I won't do anything that hurts my brother. In other words, I'm living by something on the inside, not by the things on the outside. And you can't do that unless you come to the realization that the man on the inside is the real you. Now, folks... Let me point this out. This is the same thing. Walking in the newness of life is the same thing that Paul is speaking of when he talks about walking in the Spirit. It's the same thing that he's talking about when he says walk in the Spirit. And you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So sanctification is walking in newness of life. It's walking in the Spirit. It's the same thing that John speaks of as walking in the light. Paul spoke to the Ephesians and the Colossians and said, put on the new man. It's the same thing. He's talking about walking in newness of life. He's talking about walking in the spirit. Now, here's the thing that you need to realize. If you walk in the spirit, you can predict your future. But here's why so many Christians' lives are up and down. Because they won't walk in the spirit. They won't walk according to that new life that they received in Jesus. And here's why. Because people are looking for rules and regulations. I want to make a statement that I want you to listen to very carefully. I don't know who said it first. I got it from somebody else. I don't even know who I got it from now. So I don't know who to credit, credit the statement to, but it's absolutely the truth. Fearful Christians want rules. Fearful Christians want rules. Why? Because they don't trust themselves because they don't know who they are. So if I've got a rule that I can follow, if I've got to do this and don't do this, and as long as the list is not too long, then I'll be okay. That's why the Galatians went back to the law of Moses, because they were looking for some kind of rule. Well, why would you need a rule when Jesus has overcome everything? Why would you need a rule to, to make you in good standing with God when Jesus already made you in good standing with God? When he already made you righteous, you can't get any more good standing with God than being made righteous. And righteousness wasn't even available through the keeping of the law because nobody could keep the law. So why are Christians, why do denominations form? Denominations are all about rules that separate them from some other group. Why? Why do we want denominations? Why do we want some set of rules? Why do we want some set of guidelines that say do this and don't do this and then you'll be in good place with God? Why don't we just want to walk according to the Bible and say there's only one law and that's the law of love? And remember over in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18, it says, perfect love casts out fear. 
There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. That's the place that Paul grew to. He came to the place where he wasn't afraid of falling to his flesh any longer because he realized who he was in Christ. He realized, I died to Jesus with Jesus. I died to sin. I don't have a relationship with sin even when my body stumbles and falls. I don't have a relationship with sin and will never have another relationship with sin for the longest day that I live, for all eternity, because I died with Jesus. The body of sin has been destroyed. People come to me from time to time, and they'll, have, uh, they'll be addicted to things. That maybe they want to kick smoking or quit uh, taking drugs or, or, or drinking or whatever the case is. And I always say the same thing, and I got this from Romans chapter 6. I always tell people there are only two kinds of people. If somebody wants to quit smoking, for example, I say, all right, you need to understand something. There are two kinds of people. There are people that smoke and people that don't. Which one are you? And they'll say, well, I've I've been smoking for 25 years. That's what I'm trying to do, Pastor Mike. I'm trying to stop. I said, no, no, no. I didn't ask you what you've done. I asked you who you are. There are two kinds of people in the world. People that smoke and people that don't smoke. You have to decide which one you are. Because once you decide, once and for all, that you are a non-smoker, smoking is not a problem for you anymore. Now, your flesh is still going to have the craving for nicotine. Your flesh is still want to have the, the tobacco rush, whatever it is that's in tobacco and cigarettes and so forth that, will, that, that addict the, the flesh. Your flesh still wants to do it, but there's a difference between what your body wants and who you really are. Now, folks, that's something the Holy Ghost gave me years and years ago, and it's true in everything. There are two kinds of people in every area of life, whatever it is that you're tempted with. There are people that look at pornography and people that don't. Which one are you? There are people that take drugs and people that don't. Which one are you? You decide. You're not left with the experience of your flesh and say, well, I've been watching pornography for 20 years. I guess I'm one that does. Well, okay, that's your choice. It's not because your flesh has pulled you into it. It's because you've given up dominion of your life to your flesh. In other words, you can choose to walk in the newness of life, and Jesus never made a born-again pornographer. He never made a born-again drunkard. He never made a born-again smoker. That's not part of the newness of life. You can choose to walk in the newness of life and conquer every aspect of your flesh. Every one of the lists of, of, uh, of works of the flesh over in Galatians chapter 5, you can defeat every one of them by deciding that's not who I am. But you're the only one that can decide. Jesus already decided for you, but it's up to you what you live up to. It's up to you whether you live honorably and walk in the newness of life, or you live dishonorably and walk according to the flesh. Your choice. That's why he told Timothy, if a man purge himself from these things of the world, it's your choice. And it's always your choice. It's never the devil's choice. Once you realize that, the devil has no more hold on you. Once you realize that you're not subject to whatever the devil brings against your flesh, whatever the devil brings against your desires or whatever the case might be, you're not subject to what the devil does. You're the one that decides. You know, I grew up, I don't know if this had anything to do with my dad, but I grew up with a fear of of being unfaithful to my wife. This was when I was, well, I don't know, maybe early teens. Somehow or another, I started developing a fear that I was going to be unfaithful to my wife. And it dawned on me one day, maybe 10 years later, it dawned on me, you know, I don't really expect that a woman is going to force me to have sex with her. It hadn't happened up to that point. I'm not really expecting it to happen from that point forward. And it occurred to me, wait a minute, this would be my choice, wouldn't it? Now, I didn't even know about the things of God like I'm talking to you. But it was something that the Holy Ghost, looking back at it, I can see that it was the Holy Ghost dealing with my spirit. And I didn't even know there was such a thing as the Holy Ghost at that point in time, probably. But I realized, this is not going to happen against my will. So all I have to do is decide that I'm not going to be unfaithful, and I won't be unfaithful. And that thought right there brought me freedom from something that held me bound for probably about eight years. In other words, it was coming to the knowledge that it was my choice that I could control things instead of being subject to my flesh that conquered an area of my flesh that hadn't yet even occurred. It's just the fear of it. Isn't that the same thing Paul's talking about? Isn't Paul talking about knowing these things, knowing that the old man is crucified with Jesus? If you don't know that, then you're going to be subject to whatever your flesh wants to do. You're going to be subject to whatever the devil threatens you with. 
But if you know these things, it'll bring you into victory just like it brought Paul into victory. I believe, folks, well, let me, let me, I could tell you stories all day long, but I won't do it. Let me, let me tell you this one and I'll close. I remember early, early, early in the days of the church. First year or two, I guess. Well, maybe first, second year, maybe. Something like that. There was a family that came to our church and boy, they were a mess. I mean, they were a mess. They had a little girl, maybe uh, four years old, perhaps, that was acting out. She was in daycare, and they couldn't even keep her in daycare because the, the counselors and the, the whoever, the workers and all that kind of stuff, they'd gotten psychologists involved and, and so forth, and they were saying that this little child was acting out, just doing all kinds of inappropriate things. doesn't matter what they were, but just acting out. How many of you have heard the term kids acting out? Well, what in the world does that mean? Kids acting out as opposed to acting in? I mean, what is that supposed to mean? Well, in, in this family's case, they came and, and they'd been to all kinds of people and, and the things were just a wreck. And um, the parents were, were separating and, and, uh, and, and so for the sake of the child, they brought the child to church and uh, came to me after the church. First service they'd ever been there. Came to me after the service and said, Pastor Mike, here's the situation. Our child is doing this, that, and the other. Mom's sitting there holding the child. Dad's, well, no, actually, the dad was holding the child. Mom's standing there right next to him. And a little girl's clinging to her dad. I mean, just grip, vice gripped onto her dad. And uh, as soon as I looked at the child, they told me what the situation was. And I looked at the mom. She had such a sad look on her face. She didn't know what to do, just distraught. You could understand that. And I looked at the dad. He had a similar look on his face. And I looked at the little girl. As soon as I looked at the little girl, I knew exactly what the problem was. So I said, well, okay. I said, uh, you want me to deal with this in front of everybody or you want me to deal with this privately? And uh, so they said, well, what do you think is best? I, think it would be, I said, I think it would be best if mom took the little girl and waited at the back of the room. So he said, okay. Mom took the little girl. She didn't want to turn loose to daddy. But mom took the girl and went to the back of the room. And, and the guy looked at me, didn't know him from Adam. He didn't know me. First time he'd ever been to the church. I don't know how they found us. But he looked at me and I said, the problem is you're going to have to quit having an affair and get your marriage back in order so that your kids can act right. And his jaw dropped and hit the floor. His eyes got big as saucers. And he said, well, 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 huh? How do you know that? I said, I know that by the Spirit of God. I said, the reason the little girl's hanging on to you so much is because she's picked something up in her spirit. She's alive unto God. She's picked something up in her spirit, and she knows that things are in trouble. And so she's holding on to you because the devil's trying to separate you from the family. I said, you're going to have to make a choice. He said, well, I don't know what I should do. And I said, I stopped him right there. He started making excuses. I said, wait a minute. You don't know what you should do? Seriously? He said, well, okay, I know what I should do. He said, but I don't know if I can do it. He said, it's been gone going for some time, and, and, you know, we're attached to each other, and I was even thinking about separating from my wife and getting married to her. Of course, she was married and had a family, and it was broken up things over there too. I mean, it was a real delightful situation. And so I stood there with him for a minute, and I said, well, I said, here's what I'm telling you right now. I said, you do this to your child, and she's going to have problems for the rest of her life. I said, I don't know what the situation is between you and your wife, what the cause of this is, what you think the cause is, or whatever the case is. I said, but the love of God can put things back together, and you owe it to your daughter to live the life of Christians, live the lives of Christians, and give her a Christian home to be raised in. Well, he straightened up. He stiffened up, and I thought what he was doing is I thought he was bowing his back. I thought he was just saying, well, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to have it my way. I'm going to do but actually what he was doing is he was straightening up. And he said later, told me later that God really dealt with him when I said that. He said it was like an arrow that went into his heart. And he said he realized that that was the spirit of God that was telling him, here's what you need to do. Long story short, they put things back together. Their kids are serving God now. Their family is serving God. He wound up going into an area of helps ministry. And, and the family went back together in, in a marvelous way. Now let me ask you a question. How can you go from... Wanting something else to turning around immediately and changing. It's the same thing that happened with Paul on the road to Damascus. Once he saw Jesus, there was a power to the presence of God that changed his life instantly. 
Folks, this newness of life will change your life in an instant too. It was the newness of life. He didn't get saved that morning. He had been saved. He was saved and spirit-filled for many years before he ever came to our church. But he began, as an act of his will, he began walking in the newness of life. And God put together that family, and, and they became a marvelous family in our church for many years until they moved away to another state to work in another ministry. They just, didn't, just became a marvelous family for God. There's nothing greater than the power of God. And the power of God is demonstrated in its fullest through the life of God that's given to you, that's imparted to you, that's really, that really recreates you when you're born again. It's a matter of walking in the newness of life. Now, how do you do that? I mean, this sounds all real well and good, but how do you really put that in practice? You put it in practice the same way you put salvation in practice. You begin to say what that life of God will do for you. If you're addicted to drugs then you say the power of God is greater in me, the life of God is greater in me than the, the pull of drugs on my flesh. I'm free from drugs because of the, I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. If it's cigarettes, if it's some other addictive thing, then you say, you begin to confess that the power of God in you, the life of God in you is greater than whatever it is that's held you bound. Paul made the decision. He said, I won't do anything that will bring me under the power of something else. In other words, he's saying, I refuse to give up the power in my own life. You have the same degree of power in your life that Paul had in his. And it all comes through salvation through Jesus. It's the life of God that Jesus came to impart unto you, that he did impart unto you. You are filled with the life of God. That means it's greater than anything and everything that the devil could ever tempt you with. It's greater than anything and everything that your flesh may have experienced for many, 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 many years. It's greater than any addiction. It's greater than any experience with sin. You have no relationship with sin because the life of God is in you. You start saying things like that and you'll be free. You start saying things like that and your flesh won't give you any trouble whatsoever. That's what frees you from the desires of the flesh. It frees you from the captivity of the flesh when you focus on, by faith, when you focus on the greatness of the life of God within you. That's what Paul means by walking in the Spirit. That's what he means, walking in the Spirit. You can tell it in parents. You can see parents that walk in the Spirit. Their kids don't have the same issues that other kids do. Now, don't get me wrong. Their kids are going to grow to a, a point in their lives where they'll make their own decisions. But that, that foundation of parents who walk in the Spirit will always be there and will bring them around. I'm experiencing some of that right now. And boy, what a blessing that is. But the last chapter hadn't been written. And the life of God is greater than any other thing. Everybody makes their own decisions, but the life of God and the Word of God is always a foundation that God can bring somebody back to. I don't understand parents that won't walk in the Spirit. I don't understand parents that won't get their kids in church when they're young. I don't get that. There's going to be enough of a pull from the world on them as it is. While they're under your control? Seriously? You're not going to show them the truth. You're not going to show them how important it is to be in the house of God. You're not going to show them how important it is to, to read the Bible and to study and to pray and stuff like that. I don't get it. And those are the parents that come to me later and say, oh, Pastor Mike, you got to pray. And I'm thinking, wouldn't have to pray if you'd have done right. Wouldn't have to pray if you'd have walked in the Spirit. Wouldn't have to pray if you'd have shown them the right way. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I showed my kids the right way and they went on their own. Well, has the last chapter been written for you? Hadn't for me. Folks, the devil doesn't have anything that can compare with the life of God. There's just nothing there. Some people have to find that out for themselves, and they wish after the fact that they hadn't. But that's some people's choice. But when it's all said and done, there's nothing that the world has to offer that can compare with the freedom that comes from walking in the spirit, walking in the newness of life, walking in the light. Let me, uh, I said I was going to close. I need to show you one thing. Turn with me over to 1 John 1. Here's a problem I have with some of our brothers who preach that 1 John 1 doesn't belong to the church, isn't written to the church, but written to the unsaved. I'm going to start reading in verse 5, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. It says, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. How could you say that to an unbeliever? But if we walk in the light, how could an unbeliever walk in the light? Jesus said the whole world is covered in darkness. And he said, I'm the light of the world. And then he said to the church, you're the light of the world. How could any unsaved person walk in the light? It's impossible. Folks, I'm, I'm going to be as kind about this as I can. Those that say First John chapter 1 doesn't belong to the church are just wrong. I don't think they're insincere. I don't think they love God less than me. They're just wrong. So he said, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, what is John saying? Is he contradicting Paul? No. The Holy Spirit inspired John just like he inspired Paul. He's saying this. He's saying if we don't have, if we say that we don't have an experience with sin, then we're lying. He's not talking about relationship with sin. The blood of Jesus ended the relationship that we had with sin once and for all. But he's saying if we say we don't have an experience with sin, that would be us saying that we're already perfect and nobody's perfect. If we say we don't have an experience with sin, then we're lying and we're not operating in the truth. So what do we do? Even though from our heart we want to walk in the truth, we want to walk in the spirit, we want to walk in the newness of life, this is what John says is walking in the light. Walking in the spirit is walking in the light. So, and, which an unbeliever can't do. It's impossible. So he says, if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with him. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. In other words, he's saying walking in the spirit is being covered in the blood of Jesus so that your righteousness, which is gained by making Jesus the Lord of your life, is maintained through your lifestyle. You have a relationship with God that makes you righteous, that can never be broken except in extreme circumstances. That's Hebrews chapter 6, and I don't want to talk about it. Basically, what I'm saying is there's only one circumstance under which you can lose your salvation, and I'm not really too concerned about that. I don't think you should be either, because I want to stay in fellowship with God. So he's saying this. He's saying you have one relationship with God, and that is by being made righteous, and that relationship cannot except in one circumstance, ever be changed. You, no matter what your flesh does, never stop being righteous. You on the inside has been made a new creature, has been made righteous in Christ Jesus. Paul told the Ephesians, put on the new man which is created in righteousness and true holiness. That new man, that walking in the light, that new man has been made righteous, that's it. With one exception. But... What about our lifestyle? Our lifestyle can either be a sanctified lifestyle, an honorable and sanctified lifestyle, or it can be a dishonorable and unsanctified lifestyle. What do we do when our body is experiencing sin? What do we do then? Because from the inside, we want to be right with God. We want to walk right with God. We want to do the right things in our lives. What do we do then? That's why First John 1, 9 is there. He said, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The unrighteousness would be better translated all unrighteous behavior. He cleanses us from unrighteous behavior. He doesn't have to cleanse our spirits because that's righteous and never stop being righteous. But he does cleanse our bodies from unrighteous behavior. Now, folks, here's the reason why I have a problem with those who teach that 1 John 1, 9 is not for the believer. Um, if I can be... Well, I, I'm, I'm not trying to criticize anybody, but I've got to tell the truth no matter what somebody else thinks about it or, or whatever. The reason people teach that is because they're afraid, because they're walking in fear. They're afraid that the actions of their body has some kind of effect on their spiritual condition, and it doesn't. And so they try to say that we don't ever have to confess sin because the confession of sin makes us feel unworthy. Well, your feelings have nothing to do with it. You're made worthy by one and only one thing, and that's the blood of Jesus. But on the other hand, if 1 John 1, 9 was inspired by the Holy Ghost, then our confession of sin based on our unrighteous behavior, not our unrighteous nature, but based on our unrighteous behavior or the experience of sin in our flesh is a necessary part of maintaining your fellowship with God. So if you take that out, you're missing whatever reason the Holy Ghost put that in there for. 
And the Bible's real clear on why it's there, and that is to maintain fellowship with God. So that's my problem with our brothers who teach that this doesn't belong to the church. They're robbing the church of something that the Holy Ghost intended for them to maintain fellowship with God. Now, if it wasn't important, why would the Holy Ghost inspire John to say it? One of the last things written to the church. It's almost like the Holy Ghost's closing statement. This was written many years after Paul's gone. Many years after Peter is dead. There are no other New Testament writers. There are no other of the apostles of the Lamb, the, the original 12 apostles that Jesus had that are still alive except John when he writes this. So it's almost like the Holy Ghost is putting the closing stamp on this and saying, by the way, you need to know how to walk in fellowship with God. Because everybody's going to stumble and fall over their flesh from time to time. Shouldn't be something you believe for or expect, but it's going to happen. It should be the exception in your life rather than the rule, but it's going to happen. So what do you do in those cases? You confess your sin. Confess your experience with sin. Not your change of nature on the inside. Your nature hasn't changed. Your nature was changed once and for all by the blood of Jesus to be made righteous. And that never changes. But you confess your experience with sin and you ask God to forgive you. And he brings you right back into fellowship. One of the greatest experiences I've ever had in that regard was what I just uh, shared with you a little bit earlier in the service. This young girl that was hooked on heroin. Because she knew that she had been saved once before. But man, by the time she came, she didn't know where she was at. She had made such a mess of her life. She had done so many things while she was on drugs that she was ashamed to talk about. And as is, is so often the case. And she was just a mess. But boy, when we prayed First John 1, 9, a light came on her face. And there was a change in her. There was a visible change in her. Because now she came to the knowledge, the realization that God's not against me. He's right there with me and has been with me all the time. He's still on my side. Who's going to take that away from the church? Who should want to take that away from the church? It's something that belongs to all of us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, please? Father, we thank you that the word is true. That you made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, that we have been made righteous. Thank you that we are, therefore, righteous. That a change of nature occurred in us once and for all. There was an exchange of death for life. Unrighteousness for righteousness. Thank you, Father, that that's true and will always be true throughout eternity. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody's looking around. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can't point to a a moment in time where you ever asked Jesus to come into your heart and make you a new person. If you don't know for sure that you've asked Jesus for the forgiveness of sins that make you a new person. Today's your day. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. We're not asking you to join the church. We're not asking you to, to perform some kind of ritual on our behalf. We're just simply asking you to examine your own heart. To make sure that you know. That if you died today. You'd go immediately to heaven to stand before God and be with Jesus. If you don't know that, and you would say, Pastor Mike, pray for me, because I don't want to leave this place without knowing for sure. I'm going to ask you just to lift your hand right where you are. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. This is between you and God. You're just simply identifying for me who I'm praying for. If you'd say, pray for me, Pastor Mike, I want to receive that new life that changes me and makes me new. Anyone, anywhere. Please raise your hand now if that's the case. All right, I have another invitation. And that is, if you've had the experience of sin in your flesh since you've been born again, and it's something that has created a roadblock between you and the Lord, you could do this on your own. You don't have to do it here at the church. You certainly don't have to do it with me. But if you would prefer to have someone pray for you as you return back to the Lord, The Bible gives us a wonderful story in the Gospels about the prodigal son. 
the one who left his father's house and went in his own way. He spent everything he had. He made a mess of his life. And finally, he came to himself and said, I'll return to my father's house. He had a speech all planned for what he's going to say to his father. But when he starts coming down the road, his father, who's been looking for him day after day after day to return, saw him from afar and ran to him, fell on him, kissed his neck. The son began his speech and the father wouldn't even let him finish. He said, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put the ring that signifies he's part of our family back on his hand. And he commanded that there be a feast made for his son. That's a picture of how God looks for us to return to him when we go our own way. So if that's your situation, if you've gone your own way, done your own thing, I don't have to ask you if it's worked because I know it hasn't. Never does. But if you want to return to your heavenly father. To be received back unto him. Just like the father did the son. I'm going to ask you. To lift your hand. By lifting your hand you're just telling us you want us to pray for you. We'll pray for you. God will forgive your sin. He'll restore you into that right place with him. As if you had never done anything wrong. Thank you sir. For that uplifted hand. Are there others? Pray for me pastor Mike. I want to return to fellowship with my father. Anyone, anywhere. All right. Why don't we all pray this together? Heads still bowed and eyes still closed. Let's pray this together with our brother. Dear Heavenly Father, I see in your word that you'll forgive whatever I've done wrong. I thank you that when I made Jesus my Lord, You made me righteous. I ask your forgiveness, Father, for living unrighteously. I see from the word that it never changed my nature. As far as you were concerned, I was always righteous before you. But my heart condemned me. So right now, I choose to return. I ask you to forgive me of my unrighteous ways. And I thank you, according to your word, you forgive me now and to cleanse me totally. Thank you, Father, that you see me right now as if I never had strayed. As if I had never done wrong. As if I had lived perfectly before you since I had been born again. Thank you, Father, for receiving me back unto yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. Folks, if there's one thing I want you to take from this service, it's this. You have no relationship with sin. You will never have another relationship with sin. No matter what you might ever do, whatever you might stumble and fall over, you will never have another relationship with sin because Jesus destroyed that once and for all. And as a result, he puts you in charge of how things are going to be from this point forward. You, the real you, the new you on the inside, decides who dominates who. Your spirit where the newness of life is, can dominate your flesh from this day forward. That means, I know it's a high mark to to set, but it means you never have to sin ever again. You can walk in the newness of life to such a degree that sin is a thing of the past. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Hope to see you back again this evening.